I wonder if you've ever been in the kind of situation where somebody has said something um, and it's just set alarm bells ringing in your head. They say something maybe they don't even realize that it's a serious thing, but it makes you suspect that something is very seriously wrong. Um, two days ago was the 17th of June, um, and I remember very distinctly the 17th of June 2004, 18 years ago, because I walked in from school, I couldn't see my mum anywhere, and my sister was sitting in the living room watching a program called ER, which is a hospital drama. It's terrible, but she used to love it. It was always on the TV. And the first thing that set the alarm bells ringing in my mind was that she turned the volume down to speak to me. And I thought, well, normally when Emma watches ER, she'd barely look up and grunt at you. So I thought, oh dear, something must be wrong. So the fact she turned the volume down, she was speaking to, him, to me immediately set alarm bells off in my mind. And she said, how was school? I said, good. What's wrong? She said, I think you'd better sit down. And I knew then that something was wrong. It turned out my grandmother had died earlier that afternoon. But sometimes the person sets alarm bells ringing and they, they don't even know that they're doing it, don't they? Maybe the patient who's telling their GP about their symptoms, they think, oh, it's probably something not to worry about. Or the person who says the wrong thing, maybe in a job interview. I remember being asked to be on a panel a few years ago. We interviewed a number of people. We interviewed this lady. It was for a, a temporary position and a, and a voluntary position. Um, she would have been working as part of a team. And we asked her what she would do if she disagreed with something that the team leader asked her to do. And she thought for a moment. And she said, well, I suppose I'm not going to be working with them forever, am I? Alarm bells. She said, I'm sure they'd get over it, so I'd probably just ignore them and do things my way and forget about it. Alarm bells ringing. This person probably wasn't the best person to be recruited, and funny enough, they weren't. But I wonder, did James know, when he wrote these words, the alarm bells he would set off through church history, all through church history, when he wrote these words? What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Now, Marty mentioned this morning Luther and his very strong statement of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, according to the scripture alone, for the glory of God alone. And James said, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. I wonder, did he know that Paul had written to the Romans, for we maintain a person is justified by faith apart from the works or the deeds of the law. And Paul even talks about Abraham too. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, for all who rely on the works or deeds of the law are under a curse. <laughs> At first look, James seems to completely disagree with Paul about faith, about works, about how Abraham was justified. Paul says by faith, James says by works. And it seems like most of the church, certainly and the Reformed church, seem to have sided with Paul on this one. Faith alone, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scripture alone, the gospel, for the glory of God alone. So, so what are we meant to do with this? Does James pose us a, a serious problem here as evangelical Christians. These verses in James have caused quite a lot of confusion, and I think it's fair to say debate in the church. They've caused some people to get this issue of faith and works all muddled up. 
It's maybe no surprise that when these words were first translated by Luther, he described the book of James as a right straw little epistle. And he said that there was no gospel in it. But I want to reassure you, because Luther changed his mind, and in later versions of his commentaries, he took those words out, because he became convinced that James is a gospel book. So how did he and how do we come to terms with what James says about faith and deeds here? How can we say, like we were thinking this morning, of, of God caring for the poor, and it matters what we do in relation to the poor and the needy and so on. And that's what James says. He talks about a man who comes without clothes and is cold and so on. When we believe in, in justification by faith, how, how can we do these things? Well, first of all, it's worth saying that James does have a pretty good grasp of how we come to faith. In the first place, back in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, he said this. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. So James completely understands and gets that we're saved by something that we don't do, but because of God's action, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. Every gift is from him, and the greatest gift, the gift of salvation, comes from him. He gave us birth through the word of truth. Not that we earned it, not that we were good enough, but because he chose to do it. And he chose to send his son. And what do we have to do in response? Well, a few verses later, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. All we have to do is humbly accept what he has done for us. And I don't think that's too much of a stretch to call that putting our faith in him. That's what saves. So why then does he go on to say in chapter two, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And the question is asked in such a way that we expect the answer to be no. Greek has a way of asking questions um, in a way that kind of tells you the answer that is being um, expected. We don't have an equivalent of that in English, but it's almost as if it says, you don't surely think that such a faith could save him, do you? That's the way the question is written. James expects the answer to be no. So why does he say that? Well, I think it's helpful, first of all, to realize that in this passage, James is talking about two different types of faith. In verse 14 there, do you notice that it says that this man claims to have faith? It doesn't say he actually has any, but he claims to have faith. Literally, he says that he has faith doesn't mean that he actually has faith. And James's debate here is not about putting someone who has genuine faith without deeds against somebody who has genuine faith with deeds. No, he's talking about somebody who claims to have faith for some reason, even though their life shows they don't have any. And he's wondering if they're saved. And if the implication is that they don't have any faith, well, then the answer would be no. I told you my sister used to watch ER. I, I maybe just didn't like it because I'm squeamish, but she also used to watch a show. Emma dominated the TV growing up. She watched a show called Boston Legal. And if you're not familiar with it, it's kind of like Suits before there was um, Suits. It's a, a comedy um, set at a lawyer's firm. Um, it was about 10 years before Suits. Um, and I never actually minded when she watched it because it was quite entertaining. Um, it was quite funny, mostly because William Shatner was one of the lawyers and him just trying to act as a lawyer was 
absolutely hilarious. But at the end of each episode, you see it there, the two main characters, Alan Shore and Danny Crane, who's Will, Sh Will Shatner, they go up onto the roof of the law practice together, they, they would smoke a cigar, and they would reflect on the day that had passed. And on one occasion, Danny Crane gets asked, do you believe in God? God had come into the case in court some way that day, and he was asked, do you believe in God? And he said, of course I do. You know I do. He says, well, why? Why do you believe in God? And here's the answer he gives. Because if you believe in God, and it turns out there's no God, well, no harm, no foul. But if you don't believe in God, and it turns out there is a God, you're snookered. And there are plenty of people like that today, maybe not in quite that way, but they, they profess some kind of faith. You know, maybe they rely on the fact that they were baptized once or that they became communicants or confirmed maybe in, in different traditions. They've professed faith on some level and they hope that that means that, well, if it is all real, well, I'll be okay. Kind of like a, a fire insurance policy. You hope you won't need it, but hey, it's better to have it just in case. And there were plenty of people like this around when James was writing his epistle. There are two particular groups of false teachers come to mind. You don't need to remember their names, but the first were antinomians. Essentially, these were people who were out there teaching that because Christ died for our sins to set us free from all the requirements of the Old Testament law, that meant you could live whatever way you liked. It doesn't matter if you sin. God doesn't care about that because he sent his son, so it's forgiven anyway. Now, clearly that's not true. You know, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. Remember his instructions in the Great Commission, you know, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. If disciples are to be taught to obey, well then, clearly, you can't just go on sinning. Paul came up against this issue too. In Romans 6, he famously says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? But these people, the antinomians, they were people who were in it to see what they could get for themselves. Yes, I'll say I have faith in that so that, you know, I can get eternal life, but for now I'll just live whatever way I want. Happy days. Sounds good. And the second group of people were known as Gnostics. Again, don't worry about the word, but because the Bible tells us that God is spirit, they didn't think that Jesus could really come in the flesh. They thought that was some kind of illusion, that really he was a spirit who, who just kind of appeared as flesh. And they believed that the spirit was pure and the flesh is sinful. And so they, they just thought that the flesh didn't matter. So again, like the antinomians, they thought that sinning in the body just didn't matter. Only the spirit counted. So they claimed to have faith, but clearly they didn't. They were just trying to take a little bit of Christianity, just like the fire insurance policy, get what they wanted out of it. But they didn't want their lives to have to change at all. They clearly hadn't actually encountered Jesus. And today we see people like this all the time. They, they claim some kind of faith, but clearly they don't really want to change their life to follow Jesus. So James is talking about two different types of faith. Faith that isn't really faith at all, a dead faith, he calls it. And I suspect that these false teachers are the people he has in view. And the second, people have real genuine faith in the Son of God. People have been born again. People have heard the call to repent and believe, to turn to God in obedience, 
from that call to faith in Christ and to follow on in that obedience. But that doesn't quite get James out of the woods yet because if you've studied the passage carefully, even if you accept that argument that there are two different types of faith at play here, false faith and genuine faith, we still have this problem of Abraham and Rahab who Paul says were justified by what they did, justified by works. And those examples are accompanied by this amazing statement in verse 24 that says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. I mean, that's pretty stark, isn't it? It it sounds like something that would have come out in Reformation times um, against the Reformation. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. Because the word that is translated as justified there, um, and that is the word that we use for justification, but again, it actually has two meanings. So not just two different types of faith, but two types of justification. I hope you can get your head around that, but but it's not too complicated. It's quite right that our translators have used the word justified there because it is the same word um, that is used elsewhere for justification by Paul, for example. But the word has two meanings, and I'll show you by way of example. You know, clearly to be justified, we understand that means to have our sins forgiven, to become a child of God, and and that is the way the word is sometimes used. Romans 5 is one example. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we've been forgiven, we've become Christians, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So that's, that's what we think of when we think of justification. But there is another kind of justification. In Luke chapter 7, when Jesus said that John the Baptist was a prophet, and here's how the people respond. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Now, it doesn't make sense. God can't be, it's the same word, but God can't be forgiven of sin, because God can't sin. And a little bit later on, when Jesus is teaching, he says that wisdom is justified by all her children. Again, the same word. Now, God can't be justified in the way that we are. God can't be forgiven his sins because he can't sin. In the same way, wisdom as a, as a concept or here as a personified woman with children, a mother, she cannot be justified or, or forgiven or declared as righteous before God. But it's the same word in the Greek here that Paul and James use for justify. And in these cases, this type of justification, is, it's just an acknowledgement that what is going on is right. In fact, that's how the NIV does translate those words that um, God's way is the right way and that wisdom is proved right by her children. It's not the forgiveness of sins. It's not being saved but it's the people realizing that God's way is the best way. Yes, his way is right. John was a prophet. The scripture said that someone would come ahead of the Messiah to prepare the way. Jesus was teaching that children of wisdom would be proved right. And I think that's what James is saying here. You see that a person is justified, proved righteous by what he does and not by faith alone. In the case of Abraham, Those words, Abraham believed God, i.e. he had faith, and it was credited to him as righteousness, are found in Genesis 15. So he's justified by faith when he is called because he believes. And then later in Genesis 22, he obeys God, he offers Isaac on the altar, and he's justified, he's proved right. He's proved to be 
righteousness because his faith is displayed, it's fulfilled by his actions. But it comes in that order. Faith first, justified by faith, and then proved right by his actions. Not saved by actions, but his actions were proof of his faith. With Rahab, if you go back and read the story in Joshua chapter 2, she says in verse 9, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. And later on she says, For Yahweh your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She believes first, and then she saves the men. She's justified by faith and then proved right by her actions. Then when Israel come in and take the city of Jericho, she and her family are spared and they become part of the worshiping community of Israel. I think James uses these two examples to show simply that it's the same for Jews and Gentiles. Everybody is justified by faith. Abraham's the Jewish hero. Rahab was a Gentile sinner. But for both of them, the way of salvation is faith. And this faith is proved by action. And so, Even though it doesn't look like it at first, I think that James does agree with the gospel. He agrees with Paul. Paul says to the Galatians, for example, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith expressing itself through love. That's all that counts. It's faith, but that faith expresses itself through love. So two types of faith. One is a selfish claim that doesn't actually love Jesus at all. No receiving of the gift of salvation. No understanding of sin or the need to repent or any of that. And the other which is true faith. Which hears the call to repent and follow Jesus. And two types of justification. One that is actually the process of being saved. But that's not what James is talking about here. He's talking about the life of true believers being proved right by their actions. Why did James have to make it so hard for us? Why did he make it so confusing? Well, I think he probably wanted to grab our attention. I think he probably had heard what Paul had written. You've heard Paul, you know? Well, I say faith without works is useless. He says justified by faith. Well, I say justified by works. What, James, why do you say that? I think he meant to grab our attention that way. And I just want to share with you how, how the message puts it because I'm, I'm going to read the whole thing because I think Eugene Peterson really hits the nail on the head and, and clarifies a lot for us. He says this, Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this life if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, if you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup, where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear some of you agreeing by saying, oh, sounds good. You take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together, hand in glove. Do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God, but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you'd done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that. But what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? 
Wasn't our ancestor Abraham made right with God by works when he placed his son Isaac on the sacrificial altar? Isn't it obvious that faith and works are yoked partners, that faith expresses itself in works, that the works are works of faith? The full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that weave of believing and acting that God Abraham named God's friend. Is it not evidence that a person is made right with God, not by a barren faith, but by a faith fruitful in works? The same with Rahab, the Jericho prostitute. Wasn't her action in hiding God's spies and helping them escape that seamless unity of believing and doing? What counted with God? The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing, a corpse. If you follow that, <laughs> we've got our theology of faith and works ironed out. Marty said this morning, sometimes as Presbyterians, we like to get our theology of salvation right, and sometimes we're not so good at doing the practical stuff. But if we've done that, if we've worked out our theology of faith and works, that we are saved by faith, and yet, as God's people, we are called to care for the poor, to, to live and work for him, well, so what? So what if we've got this, we've got our theology nice in a neat pile, so what? Well, three things, just briefly. Firstly, we do need to remember that faith is enough. Yes, by all means, James is trying to grab our attention. He's trying to grab us um, by the scruff of the neck. He wants to address false teaching and he wants us to encourage, to be encouraged to live for God, to care for our neighbor. But in terms of being saved, faith is enough. And we know that's true. Long before Abraham did any works for God, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was declared just and righteous. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, Romans 10. It's about a Jesus believing faith that seeks to live for him. Not perfection because we'll never achieve it, but by faith alone, in, by grace alone, in Christ alone. You know, it'd be a real disaster if anyone went away from here tonight thinking, you know, I heard what James said in, in that passage and I'm not sure I've done enough. That would be a disaster. You don't need to think that because he has done it for you. Think of the thief on the cross beside Jesus. He didn't have any good works to go on, but he had faith in the end and that faith was enough. There's a family um, from my home church um, that are a bit older than me. Um, the the mum and dad actually have both died and, and the two kids are maybe about 10 or 15 years older than me. But, but the son, Andrew, um, he grew up in church, but when he turned 18, you know, he didn't have to attend anymore, so he stopped attending and so on. He had no faith of his own. But about five years ago, out of the blue, he said to his mum, who was still alive at the time, he said, I'm going to start coming to church with you. So she was delighted, so along he came, um, and he was in his 40s by this stage, a single guy, and he came to church for a month or two, and then one day, uh, the minister, Alan, he got a phone call from him, I really need you to come around right now, I, I really need to talk to you. So Alan, faithful minister, went round, he wasn't sure quite what he was going round to, but he went round, but he said to Alan, look, I, I've just had a sense in my heart for this last while, these past few months, that my life isn't right. And I need to sort it out. So I, I don't know where it came from, but I, I came to church. And coming to church these past few months, I just know I need to get right with Jesus. And so he did. 
And only a few short weeks after that, Andrew said to his mum one Sunday morning, he said, I'm not feeling so well today. I'm, I'm not going to come to church. And she came back from church that day to find that he had died quite suddenly, quite unexpectedly. It was a big shock. Now, Andrew didn't have many good works to his name. He'd only been a Christian for a couple of weeks. But he's in glory today because he had faith. The old hymn says it best, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. We're saved by faith alone. We come to Jesus as we are. And if your faith is in him tonight, if you're living for him, no matter how well you're doing at it, you're saved tonight. You're saved. But secondly, whilst we are saved by faith alone, that faith is never alone. I thought Marty had been looking at my notes when he said that this morning. We're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone. That's how Luther put it. There are exceptions, of course, like the thief on the cross or, or my friend Andrew. But we're called to, as Paul said it, have that faith that expresses itself through love. Here's how the good old Westminster Confession puts it, and, and it puts into words what we believe about justification alongside what James says about works. It says this, Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Justification is the alone instrument, or sorry, faith is the alone instrument of justification. Faith is all we need to be justified to be saved, but it's never alone. It comes with other saving graces, that's things like redemption and reconciliation to God, regeneration, that's receiving new life from God, and sanctification, being made holy, being made more like Christ. And so it is not a dead faith, but it works by love. And so I suppose what we take from this is a reminder of who we are by faith. We're justified people, we're accepted by faith, we're reconciled and redeemed, and God is working in us. And that's our identity. It's reflected in how we live. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's who we are. That's how God has crafted and created us. He's created us to work for him. As you hear those words, I wonder what God is calling you to do this evening. Has there been something that he's been prompting you to do in your life, but you've been resisting? Maybe even something that we were thinking about this morning. Is there someone in your life you could really help, but you haven't gone out of your way to do it? We are saved by faith alone, and faith is enough. But that faith is never alone. We're called to do the works that he has prepared for us to do. And thirdly, and, and what I hope is a great encouragement to you, is that your works actually truly please God. Your works please God. You know, it pleased God when Abraham obeyed him. He was God's friend. We're sometimes tempted to think that even the best things we do for God are just a bit rubbish. You know, we're, we're sinful. Um, everything we do is affected by sin. That's total depravity. So, you know, I, I do my best, but I could never actually please God. Our good works in themselves, while we shouldn't boast in them, we shouldn't look for credit in them, they're sometimes tainted by sin, yes, but even so, they're acceptable to God and they bring glory to him. 
And they're acceptable because of Jesus. They're acceptable because our faith is in him. And because we are accepted in Christ, then what we do is accepted in him too. Remember Ephesians 2, created in Christ to do good works. That's why Peter can say in his letter, you yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. What we do for him is acceptable. It's pleasing to him in Christ. What did Jesus teach? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When we do his works, it brings glory to God. It pleases him. If we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works, then it makes sense that it would please God when we do what we're created to do, when we do those good works. By faith, one day he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So be encouraged tonight, even if no one else on this earth sees your good deeds, even if you don't think you're doing enough, your father sees them and they're acceptable to him. They please him and he's glorified by them. So don't hold back from what he's calling you to do. Pursue it. Pursue his will because no matter what happens in an earthly sense, the works of your living faith please your heavenly father. They bring him joy in you and he rejoices over you. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we again give you thanks that you sent Jesus into the world to save sinners like us. And thank you that because of what he has done, if we believe in him, if we follow him, if we put our faith and trust in him, we're saved and we are your children. Lord, help us rest in that reality tonight. Lord, remove from us the, the temptation of looking to our works and thinking that we're not good enough. But Lord, thank you that faith alone is enough. But even so, Lord, help us to live for you. Show us the works that you have created for us in Christ Jesus to do. Lord, help us to, to rest in that identity tonight that we are in him. And so as we serve you, as we do these things for other people that is, that is as if we were doing them for you, Lord, they please you and they bring glory to you. So Lord, help us in our daily walk with you. Help us to live for Jesus. Help us to give glory and thanks and honor to him in his name. Amen.